Church for Life. I have a word from God for you today. And then at the end of the service, we're going to celebrate a wonderful occasion. A young man accepted Jesus, and he's going to follow the Lord in Christian baptism at the end of our service today. So I'm pretty excited about that. I do believe the Lord has spoken to me this past week and given me a word to give to you. And it's on the transforming power and work of the Holy Spirit. God changes individuals' lives And as God changes and transforms our life, it changes the dynamic of how we live. It will change our family, and it should change our church as well. We'll be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1 here in just a moment as we read about the transforming work of the Spirit of God. Uh, I'm going to start with a different question, though, and it'll lead into our sermon today. But my question is, how how is it that you grow, grow a large church? I mean, how can you build... A big church. Well, I'm not the first person who's ever asked that question. That question has been asked a lot. In fact, in my lifetime, uh, that discussion has grown to the fact that there are now degrees given out for studies of people who really study church growth and how do churches grow. It's a pretty interesting subject. Why is it that some churches never grow and other churches really grow large? How do you grow a large church? Uh, Maybe you've wondered that yourself. Well, I am no expert, but I have studied it, and I want to share with you a few things that I've learned. Here's what I know. Some churches grow large because they compromise the message. Okay? And I don't mean to start negative, but, but that is the truth. Uh, some will shave off the offensive part of the gospel to be more appealing to the non-church audience. They just tell part of the story, and it's the part that everybody wants to hear. I'm okay, you're okay. But you know what? That won't last. It doesn't last. Because in the end, nobody has really been changed. There has been no life transformation. I'll never forget a story in the opening of Ann Ortland's little book, Up With Worship. She tells this story about herself as a little girl. She said, when I was little, we used to play church. We'd get the chairs into rows And then we would fight over who was going to be the preacher or who would vigorously lead the hymn singing. And generally, we would have a great carnal time. The aggressive kids naturally wanted to be up front, either directing the music or preaching. The quieter ones were content to sit in the back and simply be entertained by the upfronters. Occasionally, we'd get mesmerized by a truly sensational crowd swear, like the little girl who jumped up one day and said, Boo! I'm the Holy Ghost. (laughs) But she went on to say in general, if the upfronters were pretty good, they could hold the audience for quite a while. If they weren't so good, eventually the kids would drift off and play something else like jump rope or jacks. She said, now that generation has grown up. But most of them haven't changed too much. Every Sunday, they still play church. They line up in rows for the entertainment. And if the entertainment is pretty good, their church may grow. But if it's not too hot, eventually they'll drift off and play something else like boating or wife swapping. In quotations. (laughs) Guys, let me tell you, that's sad. 
That is really sad, but it is really true. And here's what I know. Some churches get big because they are not true to Scripture. And that stuff won't last because nothing has changed. There has been no life transformation. Alistair Begg said, Half a gospel will produce half a Christian. And half a Christian is no Christian at all. But don't take that to the other extreme. There are some churches that are growing, and it's not because they're discounting the gospel. If you look at the history of Kavanaugh Church, we've grown. Over the past 50 years, we have steadily grown. And some within the body of Christ automatically assume that because we are growing, it's because we're not true to Scripture. I've heard it said about us before. If they're big, they can't be preaching the gospel. But here's the other side of the coin. There are some churches that are growing larger because people's lives are being changed and that change is magnetic to the world. People need to be changed. People want to be changed. And when they see life transformation in the lives of somebody in a church, they're naturally going to want it. The key is whether the Spirit is actually working in our church or not working. If it's a show, it's not going to last. But if it's real, the devil can't stop it. And so a better question then is this. How can we know if the Spirit of God is really working at Kavanaugh Church? I think the answer is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, let me read this to you out of the New Living Translation. 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, in the ministry. And this is what he says to him in verse 6. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you when I laid my hands on you. And then verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear and timidity, but he has given us power love, and self-discipline. Those are three obvious signs that the Spirit of God is at work in a person's life and in a church. It is power, love, and self-discipline. So let's look at those three characteristics this morning. Power is the first sign of the Spirit's work. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but He has given us that of power. Paul elaborates on the power of change that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So let me read about that. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Here it is, verse 5. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There it is. Your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Your faith should be in the power of of God. So what exactly is this power of God that Paul is speaking of? 
Was it the power of fantastic oratory? Is that what brought about life change? The, the fact that Paul was such a great orator and a great preacher. Well, most scholars would say that Paul wasn't much of a preacher at all. In fact, he bored one guy so badly that the guy fell asleep, fell out of a window, and died. That's always been a relief to me because I might have put him to sleep, but I haven't killed anybody yet. All right? So I don't think the power came from Paul's voice or his preaching, nor was it the strength of personal charisma or his personality, because there's a lot of people that didn't even like Paul. And, and you know, it, it always alarms me when, when a preacher has a large following. I can remember years ago, there was a Baptist preacher who had a church that just traveled with him. He would go from one church to another, stay there a year or two, but every time he left, the same 200 people would travel with him to the next church. It's almost like they had preacher religion. You ever heard of that? Well, that's not the power we're talking about. Nor was it the power of a big, elaborate healing circus where Paul was putting on the spectacular and wooing the people. I think in today's term, I would call it a big Branson show. People want to come see the show. You know what I'm talking about? Churches put on a, a show, but if you're putting on a show every week, the show's got to be better or people aren't coming back. Some people think that's what power means. Reminds me of the story about a church that was really into the demonic. Everything was of the devil. It was the demon of overeating. It was the demon of sleeping in church. It was the demon of everything. In fact, they would ascribe to the demonic what is really the old nature within us. And inside of that church was a young youth worker who had a weight problem. He wasn't fat, he was just a little bit overweight. And so a, a well-meaning church lady came up to him one Sunday in church and said she wanted to cast that demon out of him. And so she put her hands on his head and said, In the name of Jesus, I command you foul demon of overeating to come out of him. This young man had a pretty good sense of humor and so out of the side of his mouth he said, I will for a cookie. <laughs> It's not the power we're talking about. When Paul said he wanted their faith to rest in power, he meant the power to change, the power of transformation. A changed life is the manifest power of God. And this is a problem of so much as what passes as church today. People attend some churches because they see or they hear about this gifted speaker or this charismatic personality. And the ministry is built on the ability of a man. And it lacks the power of transformation. Because I can't change you. Nor can you change yourself. But the power of God can change you. It is the power of life transformation. And some of you really want that, and you need that, and you're looking for that, but it hasn't happened in your life. Some of you become interested in the Christian life because of what it offers. Heaven and hope and, and peace. And so you want a strong family, and you appreciate what the church stands for. So you start coming to church. 
but you never open up yourself to the power of personal transformation. You never allow God to change you from the inside out. Yeah, you're here every Sunday. Your kids are involved in all the activities, but nothing has changed. Your speech was profanity laced before you came to church, and when you leave the church, you cuss like a sailor. Before you came to church, your life was filled with anger and bitterness, and you had a hate list of people you wanted to get even with, and nothing has changed. You're still the same person on the inside. You see, just coming here is not going to make that difference in your life. Just being a member of a fellowship is not going to change you from the inside out. It takes more than church membership to do that. It takes the power of God. There has got to be life transformation or it's not going to last. And dear church, please hear my heart. We desperately need to see the power of the Spirit of God changing people's lives. That's what it's all about. This week I made a list of people in this church in the 20 years I've been here that I have seen that happen in. Some of them are very obvious. You see the life transformation that, that comes upon them and the changes they make. Uh, others, maybe it's not as evident, but there has been a big change. And I, I made this long list, and, and I'm not going to read the list to you, but let me just throw out a couple. One, because he's not here anymore, but old Dave Evans. And what a transformation God made in his life. Um, you know, I, I, I texted Dave yesterday and I asked him, Dave, tell me about the, the uh, Dave before Jesus and the Dave after Jesus. You describe your life before and your life after. And, and he gave me a description. It's not the description I would have given to Dave. Because in my opinion, Dave was pretty much a hoodlum <laughs> before he met Jesus. He was a troublemaker. He was looking, had a chip on his shoulder. In fact, several years ago, I met a couple of guys uh, from Roland, and uh, I could I just tell by the age they were that they probably grew up with Dave, they'd lived their, their whole life, and, and sure enough, I asked them, <clears throat> I said, you may know a pastor in our church, his name is Dave Evans. And no lie, both these guys, both these guys went, <laughs> and they looked at each other, and then they looked at me, and they said this, both at the same time, you don't mean to tell me Dave Evans is a preacher, <laughs> Yes, he is. You know why? Because God changed him from the inside out. Here's the way Dave described his life before Jesus and after Jesus. He said, I was hurt, lonely, depressed. I was the epitome of the feeling of being lost. I remember all too well the feeling of hopelessness. God changed all that. There was a huge transformation in his life. And it can happen in your life. You know what? Because it happened the right way. It happened from the inside out. Man, that list could go on and on and on. I listed another guy. I love this guy, Jason Armstrong. Man, I tell you what, he is, he is, a, he is a picture of me, of the power of God to change a person's life. Jason was addicted to drugs and to alcohol. His life was given over to that. He tried to quit on his own, but it was only through the power of God that transformation came about, and he is clean and sober today. Jason. Amen, man. 
How long have you been clean and sober? God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. I'm six years, nine months, and 27 days clean and sober. Can you believe that? The dude keeps a running tally in his head because he knows the day that God changed his life. Isn't that awesome? I tell you, when people see that, they want that. But be careful. Watch out for the second word in this verse. It's the word love. You see, all the power without love makes for a very dangerous person. Number two, love is the second sign of the Spirit's work. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. In fact, church, this is our highest calling. An attorney came to Jesus one day and asked what the greatest commandment of all was. And here's what Jesus said, Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So church, if you had to bottle up the whole Bible together in one word, it would have to be this word love. Love should be the distinguishing mark of the Christian. It should radiate from our life. In fact, Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this one thing, the entire world will know that you are my disciple, by the love that you have for one another. In my lands, I, I could wax on eloquently the rest of this day and into tomorrow on how we are to love each other, but you know that. You don't act like that at times, and you don't do it all the time, but you're obligated as a believer to love other believers. No matter what happens, no matter how bad they tick you off, no matter how raw they rub you, you are obligated to love other believers. Period. But not only that, we are obligated under Jesus Christ to love everyone. And if that is true, then why isn't love one of the words we think of when we think to describe the church? Tell me about Kavanaugh Church. Well, it's friendly, it's dynamic, it's exciting, a whole lot going on. But when people describe our church, do they use that one word? Do they say we're loving? Well, I hope they do. Here's what we've got to understand. Transformation is seen in the way that we love. People's lives are going to be changed when we love them. Now hang with me. I'm about to lose some of you and others are going to get ticked off. <laughs> but it's the truth. You're never going to reach the world by hating the world. Can I tell you something? I don't approve of nor do I like what the world is doing. But that's not going to change anybody. If I really want to get ticked off, I just turn on the news. <laughs> our, our news has such a liberal slant to it, and it's getting worse all the time. And, I, you know, it, it just, it, it, it does. It can cause me to be very angry. And I become angry at people who take God's word lightly and who oppose the word of God. And people who say, you know, you, you, you just have to, you, you have to accept 
our lifestyle, but then when it comes to the other part of it, they, they think that the, the Christian is the one who, uh, who, who has no tolerance at all. Yeah, we do have tolerance. They don't have tolerance to us, but we have tolerance to them. I get bent out of shape and I get ticked off, but here's the deal. That's not going to change anybody. People are only changed by the transforming power of God's love and His grace. I learned a long time ago, you can't boycott anybody into heaven. Now, I know, church, listen, I know there is a thin line between hating sin and loving the sinner. God hates the sin. God loves the sinner. And even though there is a thin line between hating sin and loving the sinner, we've got to find that balance. And we've got to love people. We also need to understand there is a huge difference between a lost person in the world and a so-called Christian who is living in sin. We are called to love both of them, but our response to them is totally different. Jesus had much more tolerance for people who knew nothing about the Word of God and who were living in sin than he did those people who knew the truth but wouldn't live the truth. And there is no more powerful witnessing tool that we can use than the love and grace of God. Yet, this is the tool that we cherish the most, but we use the least. Because you know what? It is so easy to hate. I'm just being truthful, isn't it? So easy to hate. It's easy to draw lines and to take sides. It's easy for us to run to the protest lines. Yes, there are things that we don't like. But let me tell you, hate will never change a person's life. Hate has never changed anyone for the better. Never, not once. It's only the grace and the power of God that can change a person's life. So we are obligated to love others in the name of Jesus. And let me tell you what, when the world sees that and they know that we really care about them and we really love them, we're going to have a chance to share the good news with them. And if you think I'm getting light on sin, let me go to number three. Self-discipline is the third sign of the Spirit's work. God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Paul goes on to elaborate on this discipline in 1 Corinthians 9.27. Let me read that verse to you. 1 Corinthians 9.27 out of the New King James. He says, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I discipline my body. I like the way the old King James translates that. In the old King James, it says, I buffet my body. Pretty harsh words. I buffet my body. We Baptists misinterpret that, and we think he is saying, I buffet my body. <laughs> because we love to fellowship. One preacher friend of mine used to say, fellowship is, is church talk for pigging out. <laughs> and I mean, we can do that. He is not saying, I buffet my body. He says, I buffet my body. The word means to strike under the eye. He says, I beat myself black and blue. 
Why in the world would Paul discipline himself that way? Well, it's because he wanted to walk the walk and he wanted to talk the talk. He wants to be what he professes to be. And let me tell you what that takes, dear friend. That takes discipline. Discipline. Over the last few years, my two favorite words, I don't know that they're my favorite words, but I say them all the time, is hard work and discipline. I mean, that's what it takes in life, hard work and discipline. Discipline's tough. About four years ago, I was, uh, I was having all kinds of problems. You, you, didn't, you didn't know it, but I was a mess four years ago. I was having all kinds of, of uh, health issues. And uh, never said this to you before, but I was depressed. Never been depressed in my life, but I was in deep depression. I was at the doctor one day with an ear infection, and I told him all the things that were happening and going on in my life. And I said, I get, Doc, I guess it's just because I've turned 50. <laughs> And I'm falling apart. He said, no, Will, there, there's something else going on. And so they did this whole array of blood tests. And sure enough, I had some physical things happening that they, they went about correcting. But here's what he told me. He said, Will, you're under a whole lot of stress. And you're not doing well physically. You're going to have to start exercising. And you're going to have to start eating right. You're going to have to change your diet. And it made me mad. Because nobody has ever told me I needed to get fit and I needed to eat right. And I was mad. So for four months, I ignored what he said. <laughs> I'm not the only one in my family that has a hard head. You know what, the Lord, the Lord really convicted me about it. And I, I came to the realization, you know what, I am, I am out of shape and I am eating horribly. And so April the 16th, 2014, almost three years ago, I started a, a physical regiment where I built a garage gym. I have a gym in my garage and every day, five to six days a week, I go out in that gym and I lift weights. Now, the reason I lift weights is because I hate anything cardio. I hate to run. I hate to bicycle. But I do like to lift weights because I can, I can lift those weights and then I can just throw them down. And it releases a whole lot of my frustration because I see some of your faces on the... No. For, for three years I've been doing that with, without fail. Even when I don't feel like it. Even when it's 11 o'clock at night, I'll go out... And I'll do my workout. Now, I thought it would get easier. But it doesn't get easier, man. But you know what? As hard as lifting weights is, what's more difficult is eating right. Come on. Are, is anybody with me? I mean, listen to me. For 50 years, I've eaten anything I wanted to eat. I was the skinny kid. I could eat five pounds of candy and not gain an ounce. Nathan, right there, buddy. It's going to catch up with you, brother, let me tell you. Here's what I've discovered. It, it is so much easier to gain weight than lose weight. And it's hard to discipline yourself to eat right. 
So a friend of mine gave me this new diet. It's called the non-stress diet. I'm loving the name of it, aren't you? And it's based on the premise that, that as you go through the day, stress builds up in your life. And so this diet is to help you deal with the stress that builds up in the day. C- can I share it with you? you? You might like it. Okay, breakfast, you're starting out good. One large grapefruit, a slice of whole wheat toast, dry, eight ounces of skim milk, lunch, four ounces of lean chicken breast, one cup of steamed broccoli, a cup of herbal tea, one Oreo cookie. Because stress is building. Mid-afternoon snack, the rest of the Oreos in the package. Two pints of Rocky Road ice cream, plus a jar of hot fudge, nuts, cherries, and whipped cream. And then for dinner, Two loaves of garlic bread with cheese, a large sausage and pepperoni pizza, a large picture of Dr. Pepper, and right before you go to bed, three Snickers candy bars. The deal is, you're not going to lose any weight, but at least you won't be stressed out about it. You know, here's the sad deal. There are a lot of Christians that view spiritual discipline the same way that this diet is based. They want the quick, easy solution. They want a Band-Aid. They want to feel good. But the result is there's been no change. And guys, let me tell you, there has got to be change. Now, I understand nobody in this room is perfect. Not a single one of us. All of us have flaws. We we won't find perfection until we get to heaven. But you know what? God wants us to allow the Holy Spirit to work on those imperfections. God wants us to allow the Holy Spirit to work on all of our flaws. That's why the Bible says, be filled with the Spirit of God. It's not that you get more of the Spirit. It's that the Spirit gets more of you. So today, allow Him to move through your life. Allow the Holy Spirit to open those doors that have been closed off spaces in your life and give Him the freedom to transform you from the inside out. When you do that, when you do that, your life is going to be marked by self-discipline, by love, and by power. When those three things happen to you from God, the world is going to take notice. And we're going to have to build a new sanctuary. Because this old one won't contain all the people that you are attracting to God by your transformed life.